Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What we do and what we create can change, as can the work mode. So to me, you know, it's it's starting with roots. The reason I use the metaphor of roots plural is I haven't found that everybody has like a singular life purpose. Plenty of people chase after it and beat themselves up because they can't identify what it is. And I think it can often be because at different times in our life, there are different things that have importance. So it's being connected with that deeper mission you have, problems or challenges that you're really eager to solve in a way that gives you direction for how it is that you, you know, look at what it is that you want to create. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Pam, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am super happy to be here again. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you are one of a handful of people who has made multiple appearances on the show and for good reason. And part of the reason that I wanted to bring you back this time is that you are one of the people that's featured in my new book, an audience of one reclaiming creativity for its own sake. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, building a body of work is kind of integral to this notion of reclaiming creativity for its own sake. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Oh, that's, it's a deep question right now. My, uh, my dad is, uh, was a photojournalist. He actually just passed away about six weeks ago. So that's why it's a super relevant question for me. And so he was by profession, a creative writer and photographer. He was also super active as a community volunteer, community organizer, always doing things, um, around, um, kind of community development and also the environment. And then my mom was trained as a teacher and just taught for about a year before she became a stay-at-home mom until my parents divorced. And then she worked in education and special ed and ended her career in uh, as a patient care coordinator for hospice of Marin in Marin County where I grew up. So, you know, they, they influenced me a lot in different ways. My dad, I always say, was really just my muse. We, we got each other on such a deep level. And one of the things I, I just love so much about my dad is that he was always passionate about what he did. Always. He never lost the joy um, until he got really sick. Up to recently, he was still doing freelance photography for uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, where he 
worked for, for years as an employee. So I loved, you know, his love for his craft, his creativity, his connection to community was really huge. And I think for my mom, um, I do really love, she had such a great focused perspective on parenting and really she, she's a typical mom, right? Kind of always worried that her kids work too much. <laughs> and actually she has been very grounding for me in helping me to really recognize that I want to create a business that is somewhat balanced where I'm not just spending all my time working and really have time to be an active parent because I love my role as a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll definitely talk about parent, uh, your role as a parent as well. Uh, what were some of the early career choices that you made as a result of the influences of both your mom and your father? Early in my career, I uh, in college, uh, my degree was in international service and development with a focus in non-formal education in Latin America. So I, I was driven to travel, not so much from my parents' experience, but I was just I was an exchange student in high school and and was just kind of excited by going out in the world. But I think having a career that was focused on engagement in the community was definitely a connection that I had with my dad because I just always saw him doing things actively in his community. And uh, he was the mayor of San Anselmo, my little town in in Marin County where I grew up um, in 1971. And he actually started the first curbside recycling program in the state of California, which is kind of a cool thing now. He he told the story when I was interviewing him about it, that at the time when he was trying to put the idea through, people, other fellow council members were like, oh, that's crazy. Like housewives are never going to wash cans and like separate them from the trash. You know, now we look at what happens. It was like, um, actually they will, you know, everybody, housewives and everybody else. But, you know, I, I distinctly remember like walking with my dad um, around like open space around the hills. Uh, he was doing a lot around open space preservation. You know, we always picked up a lot of garbage. He was really big about recycling, you know, and just kind of that, that orientation toward having a, a broader view about wanting to have a positive impact in the world. I, I definitely see, you know, was related to my dad. And then when I got there, when I got, especially my senior year of college, I lived in, in Bogota, Colombia, and I was doing an internship there. And I had one of those moments, I was working in a daycare center was the project that I was I was working on. And so there were about 80 little kids, super cute, that I loved, you know, running around. And it was a, a teacher capacity building program. And I just remember like standing in the middle of the yard, um, thinking, what the hell am I doing here? I'm like 20 years old, white woman from suburban Marin County, California. Like, what in the world do I have to teach folks from here, from the community that have so much more of a nuanced view about what it is that they need than I do? And it was just, you know, that realization. I've been studying grassroots development, but it was like super colonial, right? Just because I'm from the United States doesn't mean that I know anything about what it takes to actually make change, you know, mm-hmm. in in Colombia. So that really spurred me on more of a path away from being an expat developer to um, nonprofit at first. I worked for a community, <clears throat> community foundation. I worked for the Exploratorium, the Art and Science Museum in San Francisco, if anybody's ever been there. Um, and then just kind of took this other path through the field of training and development in organizations. And, you know, maybe that was a nod and a wink to my mom and my grandma too. My grandma was actually a first grade teacher as well. Mm-hmm. So your dad, having been uh, the mayor in a small town, you having had this sort of uh, exposure to grassroots movements, 
How do you think about our political climate today, uh, especially having seen your dad in that position? Like, what, if any, influences did that have? And, and how do you, you know, how do you view it today? Oh, I see it in a big way today, every day, because I've actually, a couple of years ago, I opened up a brick and mortar small business learning lab in downtown Mesa, Arizona, which is where I live right now. And it has been hugely influential uh, thinking about the daily work that my dad did really, again, up to the very end in terms of being an active community member and really doing work. Uh, It is political, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. sometimes people are like, oh, I never separate, you know, like my political from my professional. I, I, I tend to look at it. We certainly have a very stark example today, right, of like a radically different uh, type of political system, right, that's happening where <clears throat> for people who are members of that system, there's huge implications, right, in many terms, in terms of, you know, human rights and safety. But to me, the the political aspect of being in a local community and being actively involved in what's happening, in this case, in downtown Mesa with the development here, is recognized that to make a change, it is literally a day-to-day walking down the street, getting to know people, sitting down, having conversations. I call it listen first, where really for the first couple of years that we opened here, I wasn't again, kind of throwing back right to my time in Columbia. Um, You know, I wasn't just like landing on the street and opening my door and saying, hey, people who I haven't connected with, this is exactly what you need, right? There was a lot of listening, engaging, figuring out who were the other players here, what were some of the goals that we have in what's happening, you know, downtown with economic development. And that is just quintessentially my dad, like really taking the time to get to know people, pay attention, listen, and then really to do lots of engagement with hosting events, you know, having time to bring people together, creating a very warm, welcoming physical environment where people can gather. And, uh, you know, it's... There's a lot that disturbs me about what it is that's going on politically. You know, I didn't really expect that we would end up like we're directly involved in some cases. We have the where the campaign headquarters for my friend Debbie Nesmanuel, who's Navajo and is running for state Senate here in Arizona. So it's great that we can be supporting, you know, her run and provide this space for organizing and things like that. Also for Jen Duff, who's running for city council down here. Um, but, it, you know, to me, it's a lot more where we become aware and connect with what's actually happening on a day-to-day basis in our community. How much do we know each other? How how can we influence what it is that's happening? Because I think sometimes, I don't know how you feel or your listeners feel, but we can get this overall sense that, you know, all kinds of stuff is happening that's way outside of our control. Mm -hmm. Really terrible things are happening, right, is my view of what it is that's going on right now that's impacting my family, my closest friends, my extended community. And we can feel like there is nothing that we can do to influence it. And I just heartily disagree because there are all kinds of decisions that are being made on a daily basis that happen sometimes like within our local communities. We can be part of that discussion. We can get to know the players. We don't have to agree with everybody, but we can figure out concrete ways in which we can step in and make a difference. And that's been a really energizing experience for me. Mm, Wow. You know, it's interesting as I'm hearing you say that, uh, I 
can't help but think of the, I don't know if you saw it, David Letterman interviewed Barack Obama on his new Netflix show. And one of the things that struck me most in that conversation was when Barack Obama said, we have one of the lowest voting rates of any democracy on the entire planet, uh, which is really strange considering that's kind of what we're known for. Mm-hmm. And it's a bizarre paradox. And, it, you know, I, I think I kind of thought kind of the same way that like probably other people do. It's like, wow, what control do I have over this? But mm-hmm. I think the other question question that comes from me, and this is something that I've become much more aware of, uh, both as somebody who creates media and consumes it. How do you think about getting back to a place of truth in a media environment that's incredibly divisive? divisive? Because I've, I've heard that literally, if you consume Fox News, you have one version of reality. If you listen to NPR, you have another version of reality. Like, And that is, it's such a deeply ingrained reality that it's hard to believe that the other side believes the other thing. It's true. And it's always been true. Right? Like media and storytelling and what questions we choose to ask and what we don't choose to ask and what we move forward is always part of how it is that we create reality. You look at education throughout the centuries, right? Being a parent, like I pay attention. And my my husband's Navajo, as you know, Mm -hmm. right? So our kids are Navajo and Anglo. So it's super fascinating. There is a clear point of view very disturbing point of view sometimes, right? In terms of how it is that history has is told. And so in some ways, this is not anything new. We're becoming hyper aware of it, I think, you know, fueled by our understanding of how spin happens. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so to me, it does go back overall to building and sharing perspectives and narratives that really are based on some of the hardcore, you know, journalistic principles. As I said, my dad was a journalist. Um, my sister is a, is a writer and an editor and really kind of lives by those principles. And I think, um, we can influence by sharing, you know, information that's really thoughtful by researching sources, by giving attribution to, you know, being thoughtful about how it is that we show up, how we can make our point of view very clear and right, bring it forward as opposed to pretending it doesn't exist. And I think also in creating content, that is something that is very clear and powerful, right? That's really following um, what it is that we want to see in journalism. Um, I, I do feel I, this is not based on like some intense analysis, you know, of like trends, <laughs> but I, I tend to feel maybe being, you know, a business coach for so long, really like working on the human side of business. Now, here's an example of my clear point of view. Okay. A clear point of view that I have is when you are operating from a perspective of knowingly not facing like the nuances and the, you know, grayness and the humanness of discourse, like, you know, when you're just making something that is really just surface level, and, and it's really a cop-out, right? You know, all of this people are wrong or, you know, everything about this, you know, administration is this way or, you know, all liberals are so-and-so. I saw a bumper sticker from one of my neighbors around the corner that was like Red for Ed, which was a big initiative we had here in Arizona to get more pay for teachers. It said Red for Ed is a Marxist conspiracy. You know, and I was like, okay, right? That's a point of view. It's, it's really a cop-out, right? It, you know that as a person, when you're taking the easy way out and you aren't stopping and really letting yourself have 
a deep, thoughtful conversation in connecting with somebody. We know that. We know that in our bodies. I, I think we know when we're doing it, right? When we're blowing smoke, pretending to have all the answers, you know, starting a business is super simple. You know, it's easy. Like I could spat that all day. I probably would make 10 times as much money as I do now, right? Yeah. If I chose to kind of go that route, I've always chosen the more nuanced, like difficult for me, truthful route of really talking about the things that are deeper. Um, in some cases to me around some of the issues that we're talking about today, mm -hmm. there's no complexity, right? I will say as a point of view, it is wrong that we are totally dehumanizing individuals, right? Putting children in cages, you know, having exceptionally inflammatory language that we use around brown people, right? Or LGBTQ or whatever, right? Kind of, um, of group that we're talking about. But I think that there are always helpers, as Mr. Rogers was saying, right, that are in various parts of society who are working on making longer-term systemic change in the way that they have focus and expertise. So for me, I'm a community builder. I'm a storyteller. I like to be creating, you know, helpful, useful information, real stories of real people that bring through the reality, you know, of the human experience as I see it and experience it. And also the, in a way that's really useful. Like I don't want people building businesses that are built on nothing, right? Cotton mm -hmm. candy. And then in the same way, there are people who are looking at, you know, legal aspects of, you know, what it is that we're working on in journalism. I'm sure there are a lot of journalists who are probably mortified by the way that journalism is happening, where there's going to be some kind of underground response, like going back to the basics that can really hold us accountable to creating great, useful content. And so, you know, that to me, it, the, what immediately shifts, I was telling this to a client the other day, you know, when we start to look, we have a time frame that may just be the next year or two, like it's surprising any of us can get out of bed. You know, it's super mortifying to see what's happening. It's frightening. People are being, you know, killed, have really terrible things that are happening. As we start to extend the time frame out a little bit and say, what can I do with my unique skills and capabilities today that is going to be building a more equitable, just future for all, then that's where you can start to get a little bit of breathing room, right? Do what you need to do immediately in order to make sure that things are as just and equitable as possible. But then I know for me, like when I look at my core area of passion, which is in economic equity and really building the leadership capacity of people who might feel the most marginalized, right? In a community, that is work that takes time to do. And I'm looking ahead 10 years and 20 years when we have uh, folks who are strong, capable, competent, you know, with thriving businesses that have some money set aside and they have some investing, you know, opportunities to take advantage of, of economic growth. Mm, wow. So uh, you mentioned your husband and I knew I wanted to ask you about this because I haven't gotten to the last two times we've talked. How have you integrated your husband's uh, heritage and culture into the way that you've raised your kids? Um. It's really 
many ways. It's uh, it's uh, one of the core philosophies that we have that I I heard of first from my friend and my past client, um, Carmen Sanyovi, was who is herself what she calls an and, which is that she is one thing and the other, right? Parents of different ethnic backgrounds. So we say, you know, our kids are Navajo and they're Anglo. And um, I remember when my when my son was super little that he was he finally realized that Barack Obama had a white mom and he was like oh my God mom you know our president is an and you know it's like a people that <laughs> that come from another term I've heard is mixed nation uh-huh. right so so the reason philosophically I would even say spiritually and historically sociologically it's important for us as parents to talk about and because there is a lot of stuff and when you start to look at Native American experience in the U.S. around blood quotient that is all about carving people up by percentage that has to do with your rights and your access to your land, essentially, right? That's where that's really where a lot of the blood quotients come from. Mm-hmm. So that's where you have a lot of language around, you know, I'm half this or a quarter this or an 18th this. You know, there's a very specific thing. We can see also within our African-American community, right? Like one drop of African blood would mean you know, that you didn't have rights and that equal to others. So there's a part of it which is saying, you know, we're looking at our kids as whole people that have this and identity. They have the entire Navajo experience when they are raised by my husband. And then they also have the experience of being raised by me and my perspective. They also have the experience of being mixed, of being and, right? Of In many ways, they can view me walking through the world with white privilege, with my experience that I have growing up where, where I grew up. They notice that I am not... Um, they are responded to in a different way often than I am, right? And then they're also navigating what their own identity is. So there's a piece of it which has to do overall with parenting that's deep. I mean, (laughs) it is deep. It never ends as they get older. You know, we always have lots of conversations about it. Like my son always says, mom, does everything always have to come down to the patriarchy and white supremacy? (laughs) You know, to which case I'm like, yes, son, actually it does. You know, I'm kind of the more radical usually, you know, than my husband. But, you know, in terms of how he shows up and in the world and as a parent, because for the last couple of years, he's been a full time stay at home parent. He is doing a lot more of his traditional ceremony and and doing more work with groups. Um, That's also part of his work. But everything about the way that he operates, just the way that our home is, how it is that he, you know, talks to the kids, uh, what our daily routines are. Um, He always describes it in that his traditional upbringing, he goes with the natural cycle, the way of life. It's not a religion. It's not like a set of spiritual beliefs. It's a way of being and a way of being in relation to nature. So there's so many ways within uh, Navajo, which is called Diné, is the is the the, ter- the term they use for themselves. That's that's their name for for their tribe. Navajo is a colonial name, but more commonly understood. But you know, in in the Diné way, there are 
so many different, uh, you could call them practices, ways that you, you know, wake up in the morning, um, go outside really early, are very quiet, connect with nature, pour water in the earth, in the garden, you know, to kind of feel the connection with the plants. There's a lot of things that he does that just part of the way that things naturally have been, that is part of also how our kids get exposed, you know, to that. And there is a lot that they've learned, I think, about their traditional ways where they're very comfortable in that role, participating with Daryl in ceremony, um, you know, being very comfortable going in and out of a lot of different environments. Um, in other ways, you know, I can see where because we are living in an urban environment, right? That they and and their ands and they also have their own personality and they have their own like set of choices and experiences, then there's many ways in which I think we're all going to discover, you know, how it is that they're, they're influenced, um, by having a dad, you know, who's traditional, who very much practices on a daily basis, you know, what it is that he believes. And, um, you know, in some ways it could be in a way that can lead to, to discomfort for them because they're not the norm. You know, we're not Christian. There's many, many folks who are in the area where we are. So it's kind of, for them learning how it is that they navigate through those different environments with, with respect. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I mean, the reason I, I asked the question is, you know, I, I think about the fact that, you know, still being not married and then 40, like, and also the, the likelihood that I'm not going to end up with an Indian girl seems kind of high at the moment. And so I, I'd wonder how culture gets preserved when you end up with somebody from a different culture, especially because in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't think I've inherited a lot of the traditions of my parents. I'm not religious per se. So that's definitely not going to be inherited. I mean, some of it obviously will stay in terms of culture, but it's just something I think a lot about is, okay, how do you preserve heritage when you have mixed races it, it's a it's a very deep and good question and i think it, it it really depends a lot on who you are right whoever that future person is uh-huh. right if that you marry um that's going to be a dance because there's a whole depth of understanding that you have with your own relationship to what does your heritage mean right there's your lived experience mm-hmm. of walking through life as you are, right, as the as society relates to you, right, being a male, being of your descent, right, having darker skin, you know, all of, you know, being a creative person, being kind of this cool, you know, all the different identities that you navigate, right, being an author. Yeah. There's different ways in which the world is, is going to respond to you, whether you control it or not, right? And then there are ways that you choose that you want to walk in the world. I would say, as a parent, that the biggest influence that you have on your kids is what you do, not what you say, right? Not making them do a, you know, pray a certain amount of times a day or pray in a certain way or whatever. It really is more, they really do pay attention to and they're influenced by how it is that you live. And I've seen it within our own family. Um, we kind of historically for my, my parents' generation with my parents and then my aunts and uncles are pretty much not religious, you know, kind of atheists, some, you know, others that just totally rejected organized religion. So even though that's the way that they parented and they parented, you know, us kids, in certain cases, some of the grandkids have chosen to pick up a spiritual tradition, whether it's Christianity or, you know, something else. Um, and I see the same thing within, within Daryl 
Carroll's family, right? He he was raised, he spent a lot of time growing up on the reservation with his grandfather, who was a medicine person. And so he does know lots and lots and lots of traditional songs and ceremony. And that's something he's personally drawn to. Um, some of his siblings you know, have a different experience, right? Where they have that as part of their their own childhood and, and really positive memories, but they don't necessarily do that in their day-to-day life with their kids. So it's it's a decision I think that you can make that really goes back to you understanding who are you, what is your identity, um, what are practices that make you feel happy and healthy and fulfilled, right, and bring you joy and bring your family joy, and then. Um, by nature of having differences, there definitely are going to be points of conflict for sure. And then I think that's about in your relationship with each other, how it is that you choose to, to deal with it. You know, I I feel like I've been really lucky and that Daryl is such an open-minded and thoughtful person. Thank God, you know, because I can be a handful, you know, sometimes like as I, as I just have recognized and and now it's been about 15 years that we've been together, you know, that I like all the assumptions that I make and I can kind of roll into a situation and feel like I know, you know, what the answer is. And he's really helped me to see and step back and kind of look at the layers. But, you know, early on we had, um, when Josh, our son was in, I think it was in preschool. He has long hair like his dad and like his older brother. And he was getting teased all the time. Kids were pulling it. They were calling him a girl and he, he was really bothered by it. And so he said he wanted, he came home from school one day and said he wanted to cut his hair. And that's a really big deal. Um, that, traditional Navajo men keep their hair long. It's their wisdom. Um, it's their strength. And so I, of course, was concerned when you hear that your kid is being bullied. And part of the thought that I have overall is about, you know, having sovereignty over your body, you know, making choices. There was one side that I felt with that. I also realized if you look historically, colonially, that was one of the first ways in which domination and oppression happened was when many Native kids were kidnapped, literally, like taken from their parents' arms, much like we're seeing today, right? And moved into boarding schools. They cut their hair. They prohibited them from speaking their language or having any of their their traditional ways of praying. And so um, we had months of conversation. I talked to all of my Navajo sisters-in-law and, you know, all the females. I talked to the males. And Daryl was really adamant. He did not want him to cut his hair at all. And it really was, you know, it was a very emotional thing that we talked about for a long time. We ultimately uh, let Josh make the decision and he decided not to cut it. And then after he decided not to cut it, I think he did definitely claim that and has really been proud ever since. We actually just produced this really cool event here in uh, in Arizona, in Phoenix, a couple of weeks ago called Boys with Braids, which is an event all for men and boys with long hair. And Josh was actually on a panel, a youth panel, talking about his experience of growing up with long hair. Wow. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. It's, it's interesting that you brought up the dance. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, I, I was on a date with some girl here in Encinitas at a wine bar and I texted her and I said, I'm, I'll be easy to find. I'm the only brown person you'll see. And she thought that was offensive. And I was amused by that because to me it was funny, but I also got the sense that, okay, wait a minute, you'll never understand that. Like, to me, this is the reality that I live in when you're in a town where I live in, kind of like North County, San Diego, I am literally the only brown person almost everywhere I go. Um, 
the thing that the other thing that struck me is really interesting uh, when you talked about the panel and, and your son not cutting his hair is the fact that you have taught him to take pride in his heritage and culture. And I can tell you that growing up uh, as an Indian kid in a small Texas town, I struggled with that tremendously. Um, I didn't like it when my parents came to school because I was embarrassed by their accents. Uh, you know, it was it was one of those things. And I, I wonder, you know, for people who have you know, parent, kids who are growing up in different heritages, maybe they're immigrants, maybe they're mixed race kids. How do they instill a sense of pride in their kids' heritage for their kids? You know, I think it goes back to the foundation that I was talking about before. I think a, a huge influence for our kids is in how it is that they see their dad walk through the world, right? Daryl is very proud of who he is. He carries himself that way. He is used to taking, you know, all kinds of prejudice and abuse and things like that, you know, just as, as he walks through the world. And so he is very clear, like he doesn't react to it. He doesn't hook into it. And I think that's a really positive example that they have that they see in their dad. It's interesting when you think about it in the role of a parent and really what ultimately are you trying to develop in in your kids? And it gets super meta, right? Because my kids will tell you very clearly their dad has embarrassed them a lot. Their mom has embarrassed them a lot, right? Being like the extroverted life coach, right? Getting to know everybody. Like there's a lot of things I know about how we might show up in the world really clear and confident in who we are. And in some cases, not really caring, you know, what people say. I don't, I don't mean that like we're rolling over people, right? But it's like, so what? So, you know, it, it's a, I can sense that it might be embarrassing to you that your dad speaks differently than others or that he might, you know, spend a lot of time explaining about his traditional ways when we're in a like super Christian environment where some people may not be interested in that. Right. And they, they kind of see things like that. But ultimately as parents, what are we really trying to teach our kids? Are we teaching them to totally avoid discomfort? In which case, good luck. Right. Because it's part of life. The other thing is when you start to look at legacy and building change and it goes back to this, you know, the the concrete example of cutting hair. Is it the right thing to teach that we will conform to be a totally acceptable version of what won't embarrass you at school that really is an acceptable version for the dominant culture that, you know, generally tends to be like white and male. Right. Um, and, you know, in the, the part of the world where we lived, you know, to be heavily Christian and not that there's anything wrong with any of those factors. Right. But there's there's an overwhelming narrative of if you are not that, then something is wrong with you. And so there's a part of it that's liberating. It's helping kids to develop a comfort with saying it is okay. People can directly look at you and say, you're a total weirdo, you know, or like, why does your, why does your father have an accent? And Daryl does have an accent. I mean, Dana was his first language. Like he, you know, until he was 12 years old, he didn't really use English that much. And a lot of people don't even get that. Right. Mm-hmm. Even people who should know in the state of Arizona. So it is, um, it is, it's a complex walk and, a lot of ways, I think, for me, that 
has really been helpful as we look at the circle that we have around us and that we have our kids is we have folks from all different walks of life, right? And we want them to feel comfortable and flexible. I heard a professor once use the term cultural elasticity, which is you can really be clear who you are and then you can stretch in different environments and feel very comfortable coming into any room, right? So they're very connected with their Navajo relatives, they're very connected with a super diverse circle of people that come from all kinds of backgrounds. They're comfortable being in a regular structured school environment, you know, where they see kids that look like them. And what I want as a parent, what Daryl wants, I think, too, is that they have certain discernment and they have awareness and they get to make a choice about how they choose to navigate in the world. Because Daryl's choice or my, my choice is not necessarily going to be the one that they have, right? They have a unique identity as an and, which is different than either of our experience. They also have a unique identity as a human being. Um, but I will always say, and you, if my kids were on, you know, on here with us, they will tell you, like, I will never back down and Daryl will never back down from worrying about embarrassing them. We're not stepping in trying to embarrass them, mm. right? That's very different, right? Making a scene or it's not about that. Yeah. But like, Daryl is going to show up with the long flowing hair, right? Turquoise wearing, you know, very thoughtful, spiritual person that he is. And that is who he is, no matter what environment that he goes into. And personally, I think that's a really great message to send to our kids. Hmm. Wow. Wow. All right. So one more question that has absolutely nothing to do with building a body of work, which we will get to. I feel like we're actually making our way through this in an interesting way. Uh, Somebody who appears, it seems, throughout your work is your best friend, Desiree Adway. Uh, and the way you describe this friendship and everything I've read, I, everything I've read about it, I, it almost sounds the way Oprah describes her relationship with Gail King every time I've heard her references. And I, I wonder, what has led to that level of depth and connection over so many years? They're actually jealous of us. They want what we have. <laughs> um, you know, that's it's a mystery on one hand. So Desiree and I met in college as we were freshmen in college, just, you know, on the first day of school. Um, she grew up in the south side of Chicago, and I grew up in, in Marin County, California. So we definitely come from very different backgrounds. But there's something about us as friends that are just really uniquely compatible. So we love the way each other thinks. We have, you know, we can make each other really laugh over the years because we actually only were in the same physical location for about two and a half years at school and then she went back to school in Chicago and so we've been virtual for all these years we talk every day on the phone and that's one part of it right kind of having consistent connection but it is something it's really like a marriage now it's been I think 33 years that, that we've been best friends going on 34 and we are constantly like working on the relationship. And what I mean by that is, as we go through time, we are totally evolving in who we are. There's different stages of life. She had kids a lot younger. So, you know, I was the one that was like sitting by the pool, you know, painting my toes when she was a single mom, like raising little kids. And I supported her that way. Now her kids are grown. And so she's really helping me as my kids are younger. But it's also as it is that we've really grown and developed in our body of work. She's done a lot of amazing work in the last few years of really stepping into developing a powerful body of work around inclusion and white supremacy and racism. And even though we have been friends for so many years, it is 
an exceptionally powerful way that we really talk about and examine and never take for granted every day, right? The way that we show up. It's not despite the fact that, you know, she's African-American and I'm white, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, we're just friends. We don't see color. Like, I hate that. That's actually, (laughs) it's actually a very, you know, racist concept because of course we do, you know, of course we notice that we look different and we come from different backgrounds, but we do the work every day to really understand where the other is coming from and to be supporting and embracing our own growth as individuals, even if it means it's personally challenging sometimes, right? We call each other on our stuff and um, we're very honest with each other, you know? And I think from that, it's like when you really do that deep work and you acknowledge the ways that you are different and your lived experience is different, then you get that wonderful connection that we all want with each other, right? Which is like that underlying feeling of deep, unconditional love, right? Just joy at that person and, you know, kind of the spirit of the person. But to me, it's a really important distinction, especially when you start to talk about cross-cultural relationships or, you know, coming from different economic backgrounds, avoiding those factors and pretending not to notice it is, um, is not ever going to lead you to a really deep relationship because we walk through the world in our bodies that, right, allow us to have different experiences. Wow. Sounds like we need to get her here and ask her the same question too. Oh, she is deep. Yeah. She is very deep. She'd be a great interview. Yeah. <laughs> I figured as much. Well, so it's funny. Um, I remember you going back through the book for a second time, uh, body of work and outlining it and going through it, underlining it and putting all these sentences together as I do in Evernote when I interview anybody. Um, but I know that you kind of offer a framework and it seems like, you know, unintentionally, we somehow have already kind of gone through the entire concept of defining your roots because it seems like that's what we've been talking about this entire time. Uh, but there are other components to this. And I was wondering if you might be able to give us an overview of each one, uh, name your ingredients, create and innovate, surf the fear, collaborate, define success and share your story. Yeah. So the reason I wrote body of work, just, you know, to have context for, for what it is, is that I was finding as a longtime career coach and, um, where I just worked with people and careers in general in organizations and then doing, you know, 10 plus years of early stage startup, I was finding this real, um, split between people who said you can only be creative and free if you work for yourself. You know, you know, right. You and I have had conversations where it's like, it is not as simple as that. And there can be plenty of people who are working for organizations who have a really enjoyable profession. They love what they do and they feel super supported. So the context of looking at your body of work was a way that I was looking for a structure that kind of supersedes just whatever work mode that you happen to be in. And by work mode, I mean, you know, self-employed, you could work for a university or a nonprofit or whatever, be a freelancer, contractor. There's all these different ways that we can choose to work. And so with that as a framework, are there ways we can look at what it is that we want to create? And that's really the premise, you know, for everything that I do and what I've discovered in over 25 years of working with people, you know, around careers Mm -hmm. is that, 
when we are clear and conscious about what we want to create, so either from a craft perspective, for you having done 700 plus podcast interviews, right? That's going to elevate what you understand the craft of podcasting and interviewing to be in a very different way, right? That kind of has a level of depth in it. And so part of your body of work is are the particular podcast episodes that you create, but it's also how it is that you're showing up in these conversations to allow people to really be sharing their story, right? Which can be far above and beyond just being very technically proficient at the craft. Mm -hmm. So with that, you know, over time, it, what we do and what we create can change as can the work mode. So to me, you know, it's, it's starting with roots. The reason I use the metaphor of roots plural is I haven't found that everybody has like a singular life purpose. Plenty of people chase after it and beat themselves up because they can't identify what it is. And I think it's can often be because at different times in our life, there are different things that have importance. So it's being connected with that deeper, mission you have, problems or challenges that you're really eager to solve in a way that gives you direction for how it is that you, you know, look at what it is that you want to create. Then at any given period of time, then you really want to look at what your ingredients are. And I used ingredients to as a catch-all for your skills and your life experience, like tragedies, right? Really difficult things that you've had that really make you who you are. And they can be ingredients. The metaphor is, right, that all of us, especially, you know, I'm, I'm heading into fit my year 52, right, on earth. And so I've done a lot of things. I've gotten a lot of skills and experience. If you were to imagine that each of those were spices in a spice rack, right, if I put all of them into one pot of chili, it would not taste very good. You want to really be discerning about at different stages of your work life, which kinds of ingredients do you want to move forward? I mean, I find it amazing and cosmic, and I swear to God, I didn't really see it coming, even though I wrote this, this book, <laughs> that I would now be using in downtown Mesa my degree in community economic development. It's taken me 30 years of experience in a lot of different areas to now realize now I actually have some experience that's going to be useful as I'm working on regional plans that we have for downtown town economic development, right? Like that's an example of something that I totally put on the shelf yeah. for decades and now bring forth. So from that, as you kind of get a sense of who you are, then you want to look at, um, it, you know, for listeners that are at a place in your life or career where you're like, Ugh, what I've been doing, I don't like, or I want more freedom, or I just, you know, want to be doing something different, then you can be selecting among different work modes, right? What makes sense? Do you want, if you've been an entrepreneur a long time, you're tired of the hustle, maybe it's time to go back to be an employee, right? Or vice versa and a lot of things in between. And then from there, it's it's really the path that I, I always walk with my clients and with myself in, in creating and innovating. It is about what it is that you are creating, that you will learn about <clears throat> if you like it or not, right? So early on, I know when I was writing, when I first started blogging in 2005, it was all new to me. And it was the experience of starting a blog and, and beginning to write where I discovered that I actually really did love it. And it ended up, you know, turning into books. Who knew? I had no idea starting out that that would be the case. But you really need it when you stay too far in conceptual land about what potentially you could do or what would be a good path. I know a lot of people come to me with a question like, could you just look at my background and then tell me what the best next step is? You know, 
no, I'm always like, actually, no, <laughs> that's not really the way that it works. You know, I can help you identify areas that sound interesting to you and then to come up with little experiments so that you get the real live experience of what it would be like to do it. So you think you might want to be a speaker. Let's come up with some very specific, you know, a speech you could create and get you up on stage to see what that experience is. So, you know, from that, I think, you know, in part of the process, I, of course, thought about you for Surf the Fear because you're the surfer, <laughs> not me. But it was the perfect metaphor, which you you live probably daily, right? Yeah. That there's no way you're going to be stopping the fear. Fear is part of the creative process. It's part of life. And it's more about respecting that and then learning ways that you can work with it that I, I found is, is part of what's going to keep you moving forward. And then, you know, the... It, collaboration, I have a very strong point of view that we we need each other. Our work is not done in a vacuum. Actually, the next book ideas I'm working on is kind of looking at the difference between building an, an empire and really participating in an ecosystem where you're part of a bigger ecosystem that's helping the people who you want to help, right, get work done. I think that's actually more like what it is that the world is like, no. but we've all been trained to think in empires. So who you have around you, who you learn from, how you collaborate is a big part in you getting your work out. And then Finally, the last couple of pieces um, are in being conscious and deliberate about how it is that you do define success, because I have talked to super rich people who are super unhappy. I've talked to super rich people who are super happy, right? And, and everything in between. You want to be really deliberate about actually what success means to you. And this is another example where you often don't know until you test and try, right? You have a goal to say, how does it feel to be a published author? You know, do I feel the way that I thought I was going to feel? What is meaningful success? Yeah. Um, and then sharing your story in the world that we live in, and with work constantly changing, where we're constantly needing to pitch for something, right? You're pitching for a job or you're, or a promotion or you're doing crowdfunding or you have some kind of offering out there. You want, want to get people to subscribe and listen to your podcast, right? We're always needing to tell the story about why it is that somebody would be interested in working with us, right? Essentially. And so this part of sharing your story is something in, in the old days, right? In kind of past generations, you wanted to find a way to make all of your experiences and your, your ingredients coherent in your resume. And I've just experienced in so many years, people are by force or by choice, people are doing so many things that like that document won't really speak for itself. You want to be changing that conversation a little bit in how it is that you show up in the stories you tell based on the audience who you're in front of. And, and you know, it, it's not to say it's not helpful. It's super helpful to have a well-crafted LinkedIn profile description, right? That makes things easier. But it's just to recognize that you could be pitching to and engage with some very different audiences. And so you need to have the skill to choose the type of stories that will connect with an audience based on who you're talking to. Wow. Um, a couple more questions. Has your own personal definition of success changed with age and, and having been through all the experiences that you have? Um, 
And why do people who are not rich think that getting rich will make them happy? And um, why is it that often the people who tell you getting rich will make you happy are the ones who have plenty of money? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, for my own definition of success, to answer the first part, it's the definition I gave in body of work is a core thing for me is to enjoy my life while I am living it. And that's kind of a layered thing. In order for that to happen, I really have to enjoy what it is that I'm doing and who I'm doing it with and really looking at the fact that it has an impact. But I don't want to walk through the world like looking ahead where I'm going to suffer and be stressed out all the time and then at some future point have a payoff. I want to be more like my dad. Like every moment when he woke up every day and picked up this camera, he was super excited to go take a great photo, right? He was totally excited about listening to folks he was interviewing for a story and like loved the craft of putting it together. So to me, there's a big part of that that hasn't changed. I think one thing that's been interesting as I've gotten older, and and one of the things I love about getting older, is I do really see that expanded success of really helping to be building the capacity of the next generation. And I think my eye for what I want to focus on has definitely expanded. You know, I'm always super excited and I'm really driven by, I say the success of my clients. It's not, not, you know, to be a healthy coach, it's not like I can only be happy, right? When they're meeting every single one of their goals, because that's for them to decide, right? I can support them as best possible. But when people that I'm working with are thriving and they're creating great work and they're feeling really good about what they're doing, that makes me feel super successful. As we're creating this new vision for what we're doing here at the, the Main Street Learning Lab and some of the bigger like economic development initiatives is where I realize like we can be putting things in place here for how we approach very inclusive, equitable community development that can be a model for other people right? I can be through choosing to live every day to my best ability to be an ethical person, right? Who is honest in business dealings and really believes in delivering great quality work, that that's part of my responsibility as a mentor to peers and to other people who are younger, who are coming up behind me, right? It's important to do that. It's important to be showing up and participating in a way that is going to be a good model for others as a leader. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the core elements are there, but it's just expanded. Mm-hmm. And then the, what was the second part of the question again? Why oh, is success. It the, the, yeah. the rich, the, yeah, the thinking that like one thing will be the answer to everything. It actually, I think, really exemplifies how important it is to actually spend thoughtful reflection and then testing out that experience in recognizing the things that actually make you happy. So, for some people, like the acquisition of wealth or really expanding in business, like is tied to a whole bunch of really deep joy that has to do with, you know, loving business and being excited by, you know, business success and seeing having resources as a way to really make a bigger impact. And right, there's a lot of things that for certain people are really tied to what will create true happiness for them. And then for other people, they can be driven because they think they should do that because they're trying to overcome. All of us have our childhood wounds, right? Like it's part of being a kid, you know, saving already for my kids therapy. You know, it's like, you know, like all of us are going to be screwed up in one way or another, right? So a lot of what I see in people who are striving for success is because they're looking for a model 
outside of them, right? That somebody has an answer that says you will be successful when. And that's why I just think it's critical that we do our own reflection, pay attention to it, document it over time. So we do notice the parts that are really making us feel ecstatic. You know, to me, community building, like connecting great people with each other, building these threads in a community, beginning to see like real work uh, you know, real relationships taking root. Those are things I know that are like legacy success. You know, I, I just, it makes me joyfully, ecstatically happy. I also know that I don't like not having money, like worrying about how it is that I'm going to be paying the rent, right? Or paying the mortgage. I'd like to have that sustainability so I can stay in that zone. So that's, I think, for each of us to define. And the only way you know is if you test it and try it, right? If you're only going to be happy making $10 million, then put your efforts toward designing a way to make that happen and then check in and let us know how it worked out. Yeah. You know, there's one line in particular that, that struck me when I was going back through the book the second time. And it's something that I've been thinking a whole hell of a lot about lately, uh, probably because of the fact that we're coming up on almost 10 years of doing this uh, podcast. But you said, you know, when you focus on mastering your chosen craft, many opportunities open up for you. In today's world of hacks, shortcuts, and instant money-making blueprints, I think we have lost appreciation for slow-brewing mastery in our work. And you wrote this about three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. And I feel this problem is even worse today than it was then. And I feel like it's being echoed in numerous sentiments. I remember Oprah in her conversation with Tom Brady was talking about a 15 year old who was worrying about building her brand. And she said, honey, you don't have a brand to build. The brand comes from the work that you do. Yes. Uh, and I just I, I had to ask you about this and, uh, you know, have you expand on it? Yeah, I totally believe it. It's still true more than ever. And I, I think back, I was telling somebody the other day, if I had started blogging now, as opposed to 2005, when I started where there were not 52 different courses telling you exactly what you needed to do, right? I didn't even think about like monetizing my blog. That was totally not even in my, you know, realm of comprehension. And it was just doing it because it was an exciting thing to explore, to, to really be connecting with people. So um, it's not faulting anybody, right, for trying to like make things easier. But in many ways, we have gotten so focused on the hacks and the, you know, tips and the shortcuts, like as if that's really what it is that's going to give us satisfaction where we're trying to jump over the process that's related to actually developing uh, mastery in our work. And I always use martial art metaphors. I did martial arts for a lot of years, Capoeira for about 11, and then mixed martial arts for five. And it, I think about that metaphor of somebody's walking brand new into a martial arts studio for the first time, and there's always those people who might look over at the black belts and be like, how quickly can I actually get to that place? Because I want to have a black belt versus somebody who might come in and say, I really want to slowly develop my skill and competency to be able to stand with security as a black belt, because I really want to learn the craft. And you learn really quickly, like you can have a hack that maybe, you know, if you have some general skill, you can jump over a little bit at first, but the risk that is created. And even the psychological risk, like <laughs> part of what you learn when you're early in your stage of martial arts is being having your face smashed in the mat, 
right? Like getting hit really hard, sweating through thousands and thousands of push-ups and sit-ups. And these are things that build character, they build strength, and you need that in order to have increased responsibility. And I think that's sometimes where we might see somebody who has like this weird skyrocketed instant success. And if they don't have the, you know, psychological, sometimes spiritual preparation for handling that, that's when things totally fall apart. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, uh, I think that, you know, talking about building a body of work is is exemplary of sort of the message of this new book that I have coming out. Right. I mean, in my mind, building a body of work began, begins with reclaiming creativity for its own sake, because I, I don't think that I could have planned getting to where I am now. Um, it almost all started just based on what you said, a bunch of micro experiments that I was conducting more than anything out of morbid curiosity and a desire to express my creativity. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that's what it is. I think that we, I think we crave, I'm sure there's probably one of your interviewees that knows brain science that understands, <laughs> just that, a handful. you know, yeah, like <laughs> probably many of them um, that, you know, understand like we crave context, you know, we crave, that's part of, I think our quest for meaning is saying that it's not just me waking up every day and doing a bunch of things, right? There's a context in which all these things I'm doing have meaning and what specific meaning that is, is going to be dependent on, you know, who it is that we are, but it's really enjoyable also to give yourself permission to say, you might've done something for a really long period of time and you can do something totally different. Like the pivots I've seen people make over the years are astounding. Well, uh, well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes something, somebody or something unmistakable? Being fully, totally connected with the truth of who it is that they are and choosing to live despite the discomfort um, with all of that truth. One thing I, I, I said once that my husband picked up and he talks about all the time is, you know, leadership is really that courage to act on what you know to be true. And when you do that, because each truth is going to be very distinct and unmistakable, then that means you're going to have a really unique footprint and people feel it. They feel that it really is your authentic footprint. Well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, and everything else you're up to? Uh, PamelaSlim.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide, it's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.